All right, friends, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. This is our daily look at the daily Torah readings. Okay, so yesterday, which was Monday, we started, um, we started a new Torah portion, Truma, which speaks about the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Now, I got to tell you, today is the first of the month, not just the first of the English month, which is February 1st, but it's also Rosh Chodesh of Adar. It's, the, it's Rosh Chodesh of the month of Adar. We know, according to the Talmud, when Adar comes, we increase in joy. So this month is an especially joyous month with a lot of celebration, a lot of um, excitement. This year, because we have, it's a leap year, Jewish leap year, we have two Adars, Adar 1 and Adar 2, or the first Adar and the other Adar. Anyway, so this, this Purim, which is the very joyous, joyous festival, is in the second Adar, um, but both Adars, we have 60 days, essentially, 60 days of joy. So if you're in, in, in any other mood other than joyous, this is the message from above, we got to be happy. That's it. We have to be besimcha. We have to be happy. And we know, of course, that happiness is a state of mind, not a state of emotion. Like we explored last week in the meditation class, all of our feelings are driven by our thought patterns, what we're thinking about and how we're thinking. So if we want to change our mood, we've got to think a little bit differently. So let's think joyous things. Let's feel joyous things. And let's be besimcha in a state of joy. Okay, so that's a bit of, a, of an intro, just with the energy of the day being Rosh Chodesh Adar. Now, as I mentioned before, um, this week's Torah portion talks about the, the vision, the commandment, the instruction, the guidance from God to Moses regarding the, the construction of the Mishkan, of the sanctuary, the portable sanctuary for Hashem that was built in the ancient, uh, the ancient desert as the Jews were traversing. So, Rabbi, yes. Um, what page are we on in the Chumash? Which Chumash do you have? Gutnik. Uh, Ah, look at you. That's very official. Okay, here's the thing. Um, I don't have one. Oh, I do have one in front of me. I'll tell you exactly what page we're on. I got, I got my copy right here. Boom. So we, I'm, I'm going to put up an, e- an online translation just because that's what is a little bit easier to make sure that we're on the same page with. But for you to follow this with this chumash, Turn to 510, 511. That is the beginning. So 510, 511 is the beginning of Truma, beginning of the Torah portion. Where we're up to today is 517. 517 is where we're up to today. So that will, that's actually a good segue into, into what we did yesterday and where we're going to pick up today. God tells Moses, I want you to go to the people and start collecting. You make a campaign. And Moses gets up there and he says to the people, here's the announcement. God has said he wants us to build him a temple. There's, and there's, there's, good, and there's good news and there's bad news. People say, what's the good news? The good news is we have all the resources. We have all the money. So what's the bad news? The bad, the bad news is it's in your pockets. Anyway, the point is like this. That was a joke. So Moses, God tells Moses to tell the people that we need donations for the Mishkan, we need gold, silver, copper, wool, different color wool, and animal skins, and oil, and stones, uh, gemstones, all this stuff. And then God tells Moses, I'm going to tell you exactly what, we want, what, what I want to be built. The first item, before even talking about the walls of the building, the first item is the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. We explored that yesterday. It's comprised of three boxes, a gold box, a wood box, a gold box. It's, an, it's a hollowed, it's a box with, it, with an empty hollowed space where the tablets of the testimony will be placed. On top of it is a cover, a gold cover, solid gold cover with two kruvim, two cherubs or cherubim that are extending, protruding upwards, angelic figures with wings that kind of shield the cover with the faces of a small child. Rabbi? Yes. Uh, yesterday you, met, you gave insight that the gold, internal gold in the box is our soul, right? Yes. And then I didn't follow what you were saying about the two sure. wooden outer, how that relates. The core is golden. Every one of us has a, has a core that's beautiful, precious. Sometimes, though, that's the core. 
But that's not what's, uh, what's on the surface. What's a little closer to the surface is a little bit more complicated, right? Can we say that all of our thoughts and, and feelings are always holy? It's not always the case. Can we say that our behavior, that, well, okay, let's, let's stick with thoughts and feelings. Um, I, yeah, so not, not all of those are, are always holy. The message here is that at the core, we're holy, we're pure. When you go a little bit away from the core, it gets a little bit murky, that's the wood. But the goal is that on a behavioral level, it should once again be gold. So gold, wood, gold. Gold being pure, wood being a little bit more complicated. Not that it's bad, but it's complicated. And then wood being pure again. So, for example, this is kind of relates to what we spoke about um, last week with the meditation from Sinai. It's like if a person is feeling a certain way, a person's feeling sad or feeling, um, you know, angry or feeling jealous, whatever. So... The, there's one, two questions. First question is, how do you feel? The second question is, so what are you going to do? Those are two different questions. How I feel? I feel angry. What are you going to do? I'm going to be a mensch. We have the ability to act contrary to our feelings. So that's the outer two boxes. So the out, outermost box is gold. That means we act like a mensch. The box that's inside of that is wood, which means all right, it's complicated. But the truth is that when we act in a beautiful way, it's not in, it's not in, um, it's not being hypocritical to how we feel because at the core, our deepest core is a divine soul that's likewise gold, gold, wood, gold. So when we behave like a mensch, it's not inconsistent with our inside. It's true to our deepest core, which is the soul. So that's the gold, wood, gold, wood, gold, three box um, message. Okay, then we spoke about the cover with the cherubs and that has to be pure gold and hammered out of a single piece. Okay, so that was yesterday. Today, we're going to pick it up with the instruction regarding the, the shulchan. Shulchan means table, but it's a very special table. This table was the table upon which the lechem hapanim, the showbread, was stacked. So a very quick primer about this. In the temple, or the portable temple at that point, which would be the, the Mishkan, this, the, the tabernacle. In this portable sanctuary, there were various items of, of, of holiness, vessels, so to speak. Items that had utility. There was a menorah, we haven't talked about that yet. There was an altar, two altars actually. There was a table for the showbread. There was an ark, we spoke about the ark just now. So you had all these items. What was the role of the table? So it was to hold and display 12 loaves of bread. One corresponding to each of the 12 tribes. Every single day. Actually, it happened once a week. They rotated. They did the rotation. Fresh bread in, old bread out. But the bread stayed fresh for a week. Special bread, no preservatives. Miracle bread. So um, can you imagine bread staying fresh for a whole week? And smelling as fresh as when it was baked, that's kind of the way it was in the, in the temple, in the Mishkan, in the Mikdash. So basically, it was a table that had um, two stacks. Each, each column, if you will, had six kind of levels. Think about, you know, think about like a, when you go to a bakery, you see they have those racks, you know, to put the bread on. When the bread comes out of the oven, it kind of cools and it... You know, it stays fresh and it cools without getting like wet and, 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 you know, like gross. So they had two racks, two vertical racks. Each one had space for six loaves. And those six loaves, six times two, 12 loaves, were loaded up every Shabbat. The old ones came out, the new ones came in. Lechem him, and it was on display for the whole week until it was uh, switched out. And then they would eat the previous week's loaves. And then they would keep the next ones up until the next week. And then they would split it again. And eat it again. It was eaten by the Kohan and by the priests who were on rotation every week. There was a, the weekly rotation as the, as the new rotation, as the new shift came in. The old one came out, the new one came in. That's when they would break bread and they would eat from the previous week's lechem apanam from the showbread. Right, that's a very quick um, uh, description of what this table was used for. Was it challah? Challah bread? It was not, no, it was not challah bread. By the way, challah... I'm not sure if it was mentioned last night. I didn't hear the class. But challah is a misnomer. Challah means the part of the dough that's taken 
as a gift, this is not what well, we're not the same thing we're talking about. Uh, whenever you bake bread, part of the dough is given as challah, as a gift to the temple. That's what challah is. Challah is not a braided loaf made with any specific ingredients. Any type of dough, bread dough that you make, you have to separate challah. Why did that become, become known as challah? That's historically, that's just like uh, colloquially, that became a certain type of bread in certain countries became known as challah because that's what they would bake for Shabbat and they would take the challah, the offering, from that bread. But challah, there's two different challahs basically. There's challah, the mitzvah, and challah, the style bread that is popularized you know, in, in, our, in our culture. Two different things. But if you're asking what, types of, what type of bread did they bake, what was the recipe? I don't know. It might, I'm sure it's discussed somewhere. I'm not sure exactly what that recipe looked like or, frankly, what it tasted like. But there were molds, um, like, you know, like bread molds, rectangle bread molds that the bread was baked in. So it, I don't, I, I, there's no indication that it was braided, but just, you know, there. Maybe, oh. maybe for the different tribes, they had different shapes. I no, I think they had one. No. They had one. No, they had one mold. But there is an interesting thing. You just reminded me. According to some Kabbalists, I believe the Arizal had this custom. He would have, I think, twelve loaves of bread on his Shabbat table. We would okay in our, our language, we would say twelve challahs on his table, right for Shabbat to commemorate the twelve loaves of bread for the for the showbread. Some have the custom of braiding it. With 12 braids, which is very, you have to be high level calibrator to braid your dough with 12. Maybe you could do two loaves of six. So together, six and six, 12. There you go, like the two stacks. There's different symbolisms, different, uh, different customs, but definitely there was the showbread table that had that utility. Okay, so let's jump in. I'm going to share my screen and let's read this instruction of what the table looked like. So we're going to pick it up. Second, hold on. Okay, verse 23. Right in the middle of reading number two. So again, Adina Malka, the page that I told you, I think it was 517, that's where we're picking it up. So you can look online or you can look in, in or you can cross-reference the book. Either way, the book has like Rashi's commentary in parentheses, so you get a little bit more in the Chumash that you have. Okay, but I'm going to read the simple translation. And you shall make, God tells Moses, this is still the vision no one's built anything. No money, no materials have come in. Nothing has happened. This is just the vision right now. And you shall make a table of acacia wood. Once again, the preferred wood of the tabernacle was acacia wood. A table of acacia wood, two cubits, its length. That's about three and a half feet. Sorry, that's about um, three feet. About three feet long. One cubit its width, one and a half feet wide, and one and a cubit and a half its height, about two and a quarter feet, um, two and a quarter feet high. So I don't know; it's it's too complicated to keep to keep the 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 conversions in my head. So we'll just do cubits. Cubits is about eighteen to twenty-four inches. Two cubits long, one cubit wide, and a cubit and a half its height. So not a large table at all. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. So it's a wooden table that's covered, that's, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, plated, plated, overlaid with pure gold, and you shall make for it a golden crown all around, the golden crown all around, zer zahav, um, saviv, that means, uh, you know what, I'm probably going to end up showing you the images from the Chumash that we were just talking about, because that has, that has some good pictures, okay, I'm going to, Stop sharing for a moment. You can see this on page 517 of Dina Malka. I'm going to put it over here for everybody else's benefit. Look at the table. The, the, small t the table right here on this side. Okay? So you can see it. It's got a little frame. Right that bottom picture, you see the little frame, the rim? So there's like, a, like lattice work almost. Like, um, like a decorated type frame around the table. By the way, that table, honestly, that table looks like something that I bought at Ikea at some point. Called lack, L-A-C-K. No, no, I'm not, I'm not disparaging that. I'm just saying it's like the same. It's like a basic, you know, I'm just keep on showing this, but it's like a basic, smaller size table. That's it. 
Okay, made out of wood, covered with acacia wood that you don't get at Ikea. No way you're getting acacia wood at Ikea. You're getting uh, press board. Um, covered with gold, again, not uh, something that goes for $29.99 that you pick up in bin 14.3 in brown, black, or white. I mean, that's not, a, that's not a thing. You can tell I have experience. I bought that table once before. So um, back, back inside. Let's go. Back inside. And you shall make for it a frame. A handbreadth wide all around, and you shall make a golden crown for its frame. All around. There you go. Here we have the frame. Hold on. What's the frame? Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you have a frame, and then you have the crown on top of the frame. All right, I'm not going to show it to you again. But you saw it before. Hopefully, you saw it. You got a good enough look. You have the little table. Then you have like a frame that goes around, a golden frame around, and then on top of the frame is this little, the golden rim or the golden crown, and that's where you get the decor, like that, that finely decorated decor gold, I just want to say the word filigree, I don't know if that's the right word, but action around that side. Okay, next is verse number 26, and you shall make for it four golden rings, four golden rings. Why four golden rings? Once again, sorry, this is how this is how you're gonna transport it. Because what do you do? You just carry a table awkwardly? No, you have you have poles and you put it on your shoulders, like uh, right, like like any classic uh, Mishkan transporter. You're gonna have rings and you shall place the rings on the four corners that are on its four legs. I'll show you the picture again in a moment, so we can notice the the rings. And the rings shall be opposite the frame as holders for the poles with which to carry the table. So again, you have rings, four rings, two on each of the sides. They're gonna be holders for the poles. Obviously poles need to go in. Now, what about the poles? What kind of poles? And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and you shall overlay them with gold. So once again, the poles are like the table itself, which is made of gold plated wood and the table should be carried with them. Okay, you know, let's just do the next two verses, then I'm going to show you the rest of it. And you shall make its forms. Ah, that's it. Forms. Okay, Donna or Dina, actually. We, um, we talked before about the molds. I use the word mold. I don't know if mold makes sense when it comes to bread. But it's like the this would be the forms. The forms okay. uh, would be the... Like last night, we had the challah baking thing. We did um, like loaf pans. That's the forms, right? It's forms, it's spoons, it's half pipes. Half pipe is a, um, it's once again a Winter Olympic uh, game uh, thing, the half pipe. I'm kidding. The half pipe is a reference to some sort of element with the, with the, the bread mold also. And it supports, so it's forms and spoons, it's half pipes, and it supports with which it will be covered. Of pure gold you shall make them. These are not wood, uh, 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 gold-plated wood. These are all made of, of pure gold. And I'm going to show you a picture so you can visualize all this stuff. And you shall place on the table, what do you put on this table? Get a whole elaborate table with a whole like apparatus. What goes there? Showbread. On the, you shall place on the table showbread. Before me at all times. As I said before, it stays the whole week until the next week, until Shabbat. And then you switched out. But you would always, in fact, the Talmud says that when they switched it out, they pushed off the old loaf as they pushed on the new loaf so that there would be never a time, there should never be a time when the, the Shulchan was bereft of loaves. It's not like they took out the old loaf and then put in the new one because for a moment, for even for a second, it wouldn't have bread. So they literally pushed it on as the other one pushed, got pushed off, and constantly there was bread on the table, tumid, constantly, as the Torah says, at all times. Okay, Did let's... Did the make the bread? Did the priests make the bread? Um, that's a good question. I would imagine the priests made the bread, or maybe there were special bread, you know, experts that made this bread. Maybe it was a certain formula. I would imagine it's a certain formula. So let me show... It's interesting that there's not a recipe, because everything else is given specifics. There's probably a recipe somewhere. 
But not, these verses are about, not the bread, these verses are about the apparatus. So it's about the hardware, not the software, if you will. I mean, that's not a good, I'm not saying that accurately. But this is more about the actual vessels as opposed to the, the ingredients. Take a look at the, these pictures. So this one I showed you before, that's the table itself. This is, let's see how they, supporting bar and separating bars. Okay, and that's the frame, essentially. Right, that's the frame, and this is the way the whole thing looks built out. You have the, the table on the bottom, you got the poles, right? That's how you carry it. You got the rings, 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 four rings, two poles, and then you have this framework. And that framework is, um, you should see six levels. One, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, two stacks of six, and yeah. I can't, I can't read when I, when I hold it up, but frankincense spoon. Oh, there's a spoon for the frankincense, two spoons for that. Um, the multi-surface bread goes over there. There's molds, the half pipes. Anyway, okay, so that's, uh, that is that. That's what it looks like. Um, let's jump back in. I want to see if we have a Rashi of notes over here. Give me a second. Okay, the spoons, Rashi clarifies, they were the spoons in which the frankincense was placed. Frankincense is a type of spice. So together with the bread, I didn't mention this before, but I'll mention this now. Together with the bread, there were two spoons, like two spoons, that had like a flat bottom so it could sit without rolling over, that filled with frankincense. These were two spoons meant for the two handfuls of frankincense that were placed beside the two stacks. As it says, elsewhere in Leviticus, and you shall place beside the stack pure frankincense. One other thing, Donna, related to what you said before, like about the recipe and the details. So elsewhere in Torah, like here we have in Leviticus, it talks again about this mitzvah. So we'll have more over there, but for right now, we're just getting kind of the, the structural piece of it. Now, what are the half pipes? So they are a sort of half, they are sort of half tubes, hollow and split along their length. They are similar to the tubes made of gold. Three tubes were arranged over each bread so that each bread would rest upon those tubes. They would separate one bread from the other so that air would enter between them and they, the bread, would not grow moldy. In Arabic, any hollow thing is called kaswa. Okay, basically, you know, I have this image here. I would, you know, I mean, everyone feel, feel free to Google this, but, you know, the... the the image here does show something. You have like dividers. It's not like the breads were stacked on top of each other. There's like this golden dividers, but that are still open on the sides to allow for that air to kind of pass through. So it's not getting, it's not getting gross and moldy. Okay. Um, Rabbi, yeah. I noticed in the, in the picture in my information yeah. that it looks like those bread racks they drop, the bottom part drops down below those uh, carrying bars. You are right. Yes, you are right. The, the, the supports, excellent. The supports actually go all the way down to the ground. It's not like you just have the racks on top of the table and the table, you know, and you could put like, I don't know, extra pair of shoes under there. No, it's got, I don't know why you would do that. But you have the actual supports go down all the way to the floor. So basically, I think here's what I want to point out. You have here forms. I believe that's how you actually bake the bread. You bake the bread in a pan. And then the half pipes are how you arrange it on the rack so that they're held and suspended separate from each other with enough air to go through but still stabilized. That's kind of the, the, the image. It's, it's, you, it's one of those things where when you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that looks feasible. As opposed to reading about it, it's a little bit hard. Um, okay. Oh, <laughs> here we go. It's called, I told you before, it's called showbread, but lechem ha-panim in, lechem panim in Hebrew, which means bread of face. Panim is like face. Lechem panim, face bread? What does that mean? So Rashi says, literally bread of faces. Why was it called that? Because it has faces. As I explained, as Rashi says, I explained that in verse 29. What does that mean? He explained over there what we just said. Um, 
What did he say over there? That you could see... I think we had that before. You could see the bread, because it, although it was held and suspended, but it was open so that you could see it from all sides. That's what I think it means. The number of breads and the order of their stacks, all those details are explained in Mr. El Kohanim in Leviticus chapter 21. Okay. So that's about the, the table uh, for the showbread. Let's continue next. Vessel item. This is still God speaking to Moses about what to build in this Mishkan project. God says, and you shall make a menorah of pure gold. This is the menorah. This is the golden menorah of the temple. Much Bollywood and debated, which we'll discuss soon. The menorah shall be made of hammered work. Miksha. Miksha, hammered work. That means hammered out of one solid piece of gold. Don't weld. Don't give me a menorah with welded arms, says God. I don't want any, uh, like, yeah, you took, you made arms, and then you just, like, you welded it on. Nah. That's, uh, that's good for someone else, not for God. God wants it hammered out of one solid piece of material, of gold. Its base and its stem, its goblets, its knobs, and its flowers, all the designs and the, the decorative items shall all be one piece with it. Don't make flowers and weld them on top of the menorah to give it a little bit of spice. It's got to be hammered out of one solid piece of gold. Exceptionally difficult. In fact, Moses was so confused about how to do it that God had to really like help him out with this. There's different traditions about how that actually happened, but it was very, very, a very difficult um, situation. Let's take a very not not like emotionally difficult, but just practically difficult how to hammer out a menorah from a piece of gold. Take a look at this Rashi. Menorah shall be made of hammered work, meaning Rashi says that it must not be made in sections which can be removed. Its branches and its lamps should not be made individually and then attached, as is the custom of smiths through a process called soldiers in French, soldering. But it, the menorah, must come be must be constructed entirely from one piece of gold beaten with a hammer cut with a tool. The branches separated on both sides. So you got to start with a big piece of gold, hammer it out until you make this candelabra. Okay, um, look at this. The menorah shall be made, the Torah says, God says, Rashi says, that means by itself. In other words, on its own automatically. What does that mean? Since Moses found difficulty with it, i.e. figuring out how to form the menorah, as I just mentioned, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, cast the talent, that means, not the talent, but the it's like an amount of gold. Cast the talent, 64 pounds of gold. That's a lot of pounds of gold. 64 pounds of gold. I'm going to do a calculation to let you know how much that's worth in a moment. 64 pounds of gold. Throw it into the fire and it, the menorah, will be made by itself. Therefore, it was not written, ta'aseh, Wait, what? That's weird. Um, oh, tiase. That's why it's not written, okay, that you shall make it, but it shall be made in the passive, not the active. Not, God doesn't tell Moses, you shall make it, but it shall be made, indicating that ultimately Moses was not able to make it because it was too difficult. So God says, you know, throw it to the fire. I got this. I got this. So we're going to do price per ounce of gold. Let's just see how much that's worth in today's dollars. Price per ounce of gold today. Wow. Wow. Today, gold per ounce is 17.92 per ounce. Okay? Let's remember that number. Now, how many ounces ounces per pound is what? 16 ounces. 16. All right, now 16 Let's do some, some basic math here. Um, what was the amount that we had there? How many? 64 pounds. So 64 times 16, right? 64 pounds, each one containing 16 ounces. That number is 1,024. The menorah was 1,024 ounces. That's, it took 64 pounds, each one containing 16 ounces. That's 1,024 ounces of gold for the menorah. Now, 
How much is the price again for each? 1792. 17 so now we're going to take that number, right? Times 1792 equals a grand total of in today's dollars 1.8 million dollars. The value of gold, just the gold, let alone the sentimental value and the spiritual value and all the other stuff. The physical amount of gold that was the value of the physical amount of gold that they threw that they created the menorah from one million eight hundred and thirty five thousand dollars and one million eight hundred thirty five thousand and eight dollars one eight three five oh oh eight is the grand total yes that calculation would be a jewish sat question Listen, I dusted off the old math. It wasn't that. It was just like basic uh, multiplication. It was calculating the cost of making a menorah. Calculating the cost of the menorah. Jackie Mason always says, whenever Jews see something, they're always running the numbers. They're like, how much is he making to tell jokes on stage? He's talking about himself. Like everyone in the crowd is thinking, like, how much is he making, you know, from the show? But anyway, so like, what what's the thought here? Yeah, menorah. All right, how much is this worth? And we got we got a number, one point eight million. That's not a bad deal. It's not a bad. It's a lot of gold. It's a lot of gold. It's a lot of Fahrenheit. Okay, Did let's. The gold comes from the women's jewelry. That was the golden gold? calf. That was the golden calf. Oh. Okay. Yeah, the gold came from Egypt. They took all the gold. They emptied out Egypt from all the gold. So that's they had. The Vatican is one of the most wealthiest. Yep. Buildings. Yep. Vatican today is they they've got a lot of stuff. No one know not no one but you and I don't even know. What they have now, whether they have the menorah or not, that's another conversation which we're going to get into in a little bit. But let's let's get back inside as we as we get back into the reading. Okay, but here the the big idea that just happened. The big idea is that at some point, according to one tradition, not according to all tradition, according to one tradition, Moses couldn't make the menorah, or the people couldn't make the menorah ultimately, and they threw the gold into the fire, and out came the menorah finished product. Okay, now the base is the feet at the bottom, stem, central stem, goblets, um, knobs, flowers. Okay, I don't think we need to get into all these rashis. Let's, let's get back inside. All right, so God tells Moses, make the menorah. It's going to be one piece of gold hammered out. You got a base. That's the foot at the bottom. The stem is the center branch. Goblets, knobs, flowers are all decor items. All right, what about the branches? And six branches coming out of its sides. Three menorah branches from its one side and three menorah branches from its second side. So very simple. You got three branches. You got a center stem. You got three branches protruding from either side, which gives you a total of how many, bran of how many, how many branch points? Three plus three plus one. Don't forget your center stem. That's a total of seven branches. I mean, I don't know if you call the center one a branch. It's the stem. The center stem, but three plus three plus one is seven total ends. Let's continue. Three decorated goblets on one branch. This is the way it should look. Three decorated goblets on one branch. A knob and a flower. So you do three goblets, a knob, and a flower. So three, four, five, five decor items. And three decorated goblets on one branch, a knob, and a flower. So for the six branches that come out of the menorah. So for all six branches, three and three, you're going to create, you're going to hammer a decorative flare of three cups, a knob, and a flower. I'm going to show you a picture of what that looks like soon. And on the stem, those are the branches. On the stem of the menorah shall be four decorated goblets, not three. I'll take your three goblets and raise you a fourth. Four decorated goblets. It's knobs and it's flowers. And a knob under the two branches from it and a knob under the two branches from it and a knob under the two branches from it. In other words, at the meeting point on the stem, at the point where the, the branches that are coming out on either side, where they meet, you're going to put more decorative items at that, at that point of meeting. So for the six branches that come out, uh, that come out of the menorah, you put those decorative items. Their knobs and their branches shall all be one piece with it, as we said before, hammered out one piece. No welding, no, no, no fooling around with that stuff. One piece. It shall all, it, all of it shall be one hammered mass of pure gold. That is it. 
and you shall make its lamps seven, right? Seven lamps, because you have three, three and one, seven. Seven lamps, and he shall kindle. He, who's he? We don't know. We haven't spoken about Kohanim yet. It's funny. This is before like priests and Aaron being the high priest. Whoever he is, the lighter shall kindle its lamps so that they shed light toward its face. They should all face, all the, the wicks should all face the center stem. And its tongs and its scoops shall be a pure gold. Those are the um, accessories that are going to help you take out the wicks and refill the oil, all that stuff, all the accessories. They should all be made out of pure gold. This is no, no wood over here, pure, pure gold. He shall make it, once again, of a talent, 64 pounds of pure gold with all these implements. Did I get that right? 64? I guess that was Rashi. Did we, was that Rashi? Yeah. Double check. Yeah, 64 pounds. That was our brackets, which was very helpful. Helpful to know. Okay, let's continue. Now, God says, see and make according to the pattern which you are shown on the mountain. That indicates that God showed him a sample menorah, like in, you know, a vision of what it should look like. And then he's like, yeah, kind of like this. Let me show you a picture from our Chumash, not our, whatever, from the Gunan Chumash um, of the menorah. This is one version that is based on Maimonides' handwritten version of the menorah. Here you go. You have there a base at the bottom. You have a center stem. You have three branches on either side. And then you have, of course, the decorative items. You have cups. You have knobs. You have flowers, right, on all the branches. At the center meeting points, you have like a little knob, like a little round thing um, at the joints. You have more. One second. What else do you have? You have flowers and, and here it's called spheres whatever, and ornamental cups toward the bottom also of that, of that stem. Okay, so you have all this de de decorative stuff. Now, the original uh, diagram of Maimonides was discovered. We have this. This is a real thing. Look at that little handwritten situation, um, hand-drawn right there. That little menorah thing, that little black and white menorah, that is directly from, a, from an artist's rendition, or rendition drawn, hand-drawn, by Rambam, Maimonides himself, which opens up a whole Pandora's box, I don't know if that's the right phrase, of controversy. What did the menorah look like? Did it have diagonal branches or rounded branches? Because the Arch of Titus, for all of our Rome visitors or anyone that's uh, familiar with this, you go to the Arch of Titus and they're carrying out, oh, like a Judea captura, whatever it's called. Judea was taken captive. That's like the slogan. That's like, we got him. Meanwhile, how many people do you know wearing togas today versus, uh, you don't have to answer that, but versus how many people are wear, wearing tefillin and studying Torah? I, th I think in the long run, <laughs> we're still okay. But they did carry out what allegedly they carried out, the menorah. Well, look at the menorah in the picture. It's got these rounded branches, right? One, two, three layers of rounded branches, six and seven uh, um, uh, lamps like, was, like we talked about. But that's a different image than Maimonides' diagonal version. So it becomes a little bit complicated. Rabbi, I yeah. just need to say that when I was under the Arch of Titus in Italy, I just put up my arms and I said, and we're still here. Oh, I love that. You were there. Yeah. That's amazing. And we're still here. Love that. Love that. The perfect response. Can't, can't get rid of us. Nice try. Didn't work. Still here. That's great. That is amazing. First of all, just Adina Malka, give, give a little bit of insight here. How big is that arch? Is it massive? Is it like oh, huge? It's, it's very big. Okay. It's very, I'll show you. I'll bring you a photo of it. It's very big. Or text. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's, it's pretty cool that you, were, that you were like in that space. So here's the deal. Some commentaries, Rashi also, I'm going to show you Rashi soon. Rashi also says they came out diagonally, but there are commentaries that say rounded. But we got Rashi, Maimonides, you got some heavy hitters in the, in the diagonal team. The Rebbe said that most likely 
it was the, the temple menorah was diagonal. What's with the Arch of Titus? There were probably other candelabras in the temple. Think about it. There was no indoor lighting. It's not like the priest came in the morning and you know hit the light switch or used an app to turn on their lights. That's not what happened. They had candelabras everywhere. So likely they hid the real menorah somewhere and the Roman, because they knew what was going to happen. It's not like the Romans surprised them one night by storming in and grabbing the stuff. That's not what happened. They knew the handwriting was on the wall for a long time. Our tradition has it that there were secret tunnels, secret passageways, where the temple artifacts were hidden underground. Now, again, I, I don't know. Never saw those, never saw those, right? I, I don't know what's in either location. I'm referring to, of course, Jerusalem or Rome. I, who, I can't, I'm not speaking from personal experience, but this is what it says, that the Jews hid a lot of the precious artifacts, including the Ark of the Covenant and including the menorah. And so what the Romans got their hands on were likely either copies that were made for them, you know, like fake, fake copies, or they just got another candelabra, right? They just got another candelabra that because the, the, the temple presumably required lots of lighting. Um, Knesset menorah is what? What is the Knesset menorah? It's rounded. That's the version that's in front of the Knesset building. That's what they use to represent the temple menorah. Right. Okay. Interesting. Bradley, yes. You know, are we putting that course under Jerusalem by Andrew Lawler? Wait, say it again. Say it again. Is what? Are we having a presentation by Andrew Lawler under Jerusalem? That's not us. We're doing Hidden Secrets of Israel, a virtual tour with, um, with, uh, with somebody else. Um, but, oh, that sounds, but that sounds interesting. This book um, oh, nice. titled Underground. Oh, I like that. Oh, and he talks about um, secret passageways and tunnels? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to check that out. I like that. Okay. I like that. Um, there's a lot of discussion. It gets very mystical and mysterious. Again, I'm just telling you what it says in the books and, and, and kind of like the controversies. Um, you know, but, but the Rebbe was very much advocating teaching the vision of the menorah from our tradition and not just because the Arch of Titus has it as rounded. In other words, to say that the menorah is rounded because look, it's on the Arch of Titus is to give the Romans a little too much, uh, a little too much power. Rashi says that it was, di it was diagonal. Maimonides says it was diagonal. I, what about the Arch of Titus? Who says that was the right menorah? Who says? How do you know what they were depicting? Right? Rabbi Ari, I have a question. Yeah. It's not Rashi, but, but just straight Torah. Says, because um, I've been looking at this. Yeah. It says three branches of the menorah. Uh, or, no, sorry. It says they extend from each side. Yeah. That's six branches emerging from its side. Yeah. And that's, and Rashi then says that means diagonally. But emerging doesn't mean diagonally. It could be curved, it could be straight. So I don't get it. No. You're saying, how does Rashi, you're saying, how did Rashi know? Yeah, how does he know they're straight? Good. Okay, good. Now we have to get into how Rashi... Is Perfect. Rashi, Rashi didn't make up stuff. So whatever he got was from his teachers or an established tradition. So if Rashi is saying that when the Torah says the branches are extending, he says, FYI, that means diagonally, right? Rashi is saying that because it's not obvious, but he's telling it to us not from his own, you know, his own uh, ideas, his own fantasies. He's telling us from tradition. That, and that's the point. Now, are there other commentaries? Sure. But you have Rashi and Rambam. I mean, you have heavy hitters on the side of, on Team Diagonal. It's a pretty big, it's a pretty solid team, right? You have Team Rounded and Team Diagonal. Team Diagonal has got like power, you know, sluggers. It's like an all-star team. You got, uh, you know, got some, got some strength on that team. Again, I wasn't there. I'm not, I can't, I'm not weighing in on this. The Rebbe also said, that a lot of Jewish books, oh, was that about this or about the, um, about the tablets? There's a similar fiasco 
regarding the tablets, the two stone tablets, where the typical depiction is of a rounded top. And the Rebbe says that's not a Jewish traditional understanding. The tablets were square. They weren't rounded. It had a flat top. It wasn't rounded. Where did the rounded come from? Again, it came from not Jewish sources. It doesn't come from Jewish sources. It came from other depictions. Michelangelo, whoever it was that first sculpted it, he came, decided the tablets were round. He didn't study Rashi. He didn't study the Talmud. He just made a picture. He made an image. And then that became like, oh, well, if it's depicted in art, it must be true. It's kind of like how art influences our perception of reality in both the Arch of Titus and in depictions of the tablets to the point that even Jews believe, well, that's the way, it, obviously that's the way it was. When you look at, this, at the sources and you look at the commentaries, you realize, not necessarily. At least we can ask the question, is that accurate? I'm not, gonna, like, I'm not digging in anything here. I have, I, have no, I have no skin in the game. I'm just saying, look a little bit into it, you realize it's not so simple. It's not so simple. Okay. Art depicts Moses with the horns. Uh, and no one would take that seriously, right? You would think, right? Is that the same one that has him with the tablets? Is it the same one? The horns is with the tablets? Is it, is it that one? So one second. That one was Michelangelo? Jalo, Moses, tablets. Horns. Horns. These are my, good. These are my keywords. Let's go. Let's see an image. After all that, Moses is depicted sitting down. What's he holding? Nah. He's holding a, he's holding a book. Where's the one with the tablets? Moses, tablets, um, sculpture. Let's see. Sculpt, sculpture. Okay. Ah, uh, no, that's not. That's a painting. No, it's a, it's a painting. Is it a painting? It's a painting. No, it's who, a... who painted it? <laughs> ah, oh, Gustav Rembrandt. Ah, <laughs> the old Rembrandt. There you go. Rembrandt. Achacham. Rembrandt is the one who messed this up. Great. Thank you very much. Rembrandt made Moses holding the... It's a, I just looked it up. It's... It's really dramatic. Moses is holding the tablets, about to smash them. So then what's and now what? By the way, there's another issue here. Here's another layer. You ready for this? In European countries that were under dominion of the church, listen to this. All Jewish books for hundreds of years had to be censored by the church. And when they said it was kosher, they did a Jewish stamp. They created the Jewish stamp and they, they used... Jewish, what they called Jewish symbols, including menorahs, including tablets, they would stamp the books as kosher using an allegedly Jewish stamp. And then generations of Jews studying Jewish texts would open it up. And in the cover page, they would see a stamp with a Jewish symbol that might have been depicted in a not Jewishly traditional way. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So if the inside of your book, if the inside of your book has a stamp with rounded tablets, so you think, oh, those were the tablets. You're not even thinking that maybe it's inaccurate. If your menorah is rounded, you think, okay, that's how the menorah was, obviously. Why not? But you, then you realize, well, hold, who, who made this, who designed the stamp? <laughs> what were they basing it on? You realize, okay, once, at least we can ask the question. Okay, that is, oh, I'd love a good conspiracy. So it's fantastic. It's not a conspiracy, but it's, it's just an understanding of origins and uh, you know, how things get a little bit muddied over time. Okay. Um, we're, we're already at the time, but it's like so exciting. We did the menorah. Okay. I feel like we're... Um, no, you know what? Let's do a little bit more. Let's do a little bit more. Hold on. Let me, let me toggle Rashi off and let's see where we are right now. The curtains. I know what you're thinking. It's already curtain call. Curtain curtain call for this class. Um, give me a second. Let's see how long reading four is. Let's do a little bit of the curtains, and then we're gonna call it call it quits. Okay, this is gonna be chapter twenty six of Exodus, verse number one, in the Chumash. 
uh, Dinamalka, just so you have it on. Oh, yeah, it's 519. 519, the last. Um, where it says 26, the big old 26 in the margin. That's where Covering we're going to start. Yeah, cover, yeah, exactly. Coverings of the tabernacle. So now we're going to get into the coverings of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, oh, just to clarify, the tabernacle is the Mishkan, right? So that was a building, but there were, it's a little bit complicated. There's two spaces. There's a building, okay, where that's covered, a covered building in which is the holies and the holy of holies. That's where the menorah is, the showbread table. Um, there's an inner altar over there. And then you have, of course, in the innermost chamber is the Ark of the Covenant with the, with the wings, and with the angels and the wings. Okay. So that's the, that's the actual tabernacle building. But then you have like a courtyard with the, the, alt, the outer altar and other stuff that happens under the sky, uncovered, right? So this is like open. And around this larger area is a retaining wall. In that, in the case of the um, of the Mishkan, it was a portable, like made up of planks of wood. But you you had that kind of perimeter to kind of keep everything contained. So you had like so. If you were to walk into the Mishkan, it really depends on how you define it. You could walk into the courtyard area, um, and then you would be like you know under the sky. It was like open area. But enclosed with uh, with a boundary with with walls, but then there would also be a, a building. You know, at, at one far end of this open area would be a building, and that building would be um, a, a, the, the holy and holy of holies. Not anyone, not everyone could go into all these spaces, depending on who you were, and and how you were is is how you could enter sacred spaces. Only a kohen could enter certain spaces. Only a high priest could enter certain spaces. You had to be ritually pure, all that stuff. But that's for another. Another conversation and really another book of the Torah. That's really Leviticus. Okay, let's now quickly, quickly, quickly do a few verses of Exodus chapter 26. God says, and the Mishkan, the Mishkan, you shall make out of 10 curtains. You got to make curtains for this building that's covered. What are the curtains made out of? Consisting of twisted fine linen and blue, purple, and crimson wool. So you got linen and wool. Oh my gosh. Linen and wool, linen and wool, what's up with that? So some commentaries explain that that's why God forbids linen and wool in private use. Because linen and wool is for the sacred, the sacred use. It's for, God says, I'm the one, not literally, but save your wool and linen for me. You, you don't get wool and linen. A cherubim design of the work of a master weaver, (coughs) you shall make them. What does that mean, true design? It means that on some level, oh, you know what's interesting? Here it's translated differently in the Chumash, in the actual Gunnik. It says animal designs should be professionally woven into them on both sides. Animal, not true designs, but animal designs. Not angel designs, but animal designs. That's probably Rashi clarifying that. Um, on one side you would look at it and it was one animal. On the other side it would have another animal, which is very difficult when you weave because um, every time I weave, which I've never we- woven, but if I would weave, I would imagine that on the other side it would look all knotted and uh, you know nondescript. To weave something on both sides is pretty cool. Um, oh, a lion. Look at, look at Rashi. A lion from this side and an eagle from that side. Look at that. Look at that. Lion on one side eagle on the other side. That's pretty cool. Pretty elaborate. Okay. There's a lot of Rashi that we're skipping just in order to get the flow here. The length of one curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of one curtain shall be four cubits. The same measure for all the curtains. That's the size. Those are big curtains. 28 cubits. It's like a foot and a half. That's, uh, what is that? 28 plus 14. We're talking about 42 feet by six feet. 42 by six feet. That's a lot. That's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of curtain right there. Yeah, you want to buy that curtain out over at, um, I don't know, Viesa's Pottery Barn or something like that. It's going to cost you a pretty penny. Five of these curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains should also be joined to one another. So you take these curtains and you attach five, and then five and five, that sounds like a total of ten to me, and, uh, and that's going to cover the, the, the tabernacle building. Ah, look at this. Once again, I got pictures. We got pictures right here. Boom. Classic tabernacle building covered with the curtains. I mean, it's black and white, so you're not going to actually see curtains with color, but 
That's it is what it is. All right, let's get back in. Yes. I have an interesting note. I hate to interrupt you. Really no worries. Know. Jump in. Uh, th- this is on. It says Mizrahi. Who's Mizrahi? On the basis of Rashi, yeah. Yoma says that a lion and an eagle were not necessarily depicted on the parochus. What's that? The the, the, the curtains. Yeah, parochus is curtains. Yeah. Accord- according to him, Rashi is merely giving examples of the types of designs which are made in this manner of weaving. Ah. According to, to Minchus Yehuda and Sifsei. Chachamim, whatever those are. Yeah. It says that it says the cherubim uh, uh, were, were depicted on the which were depicted on the brokas were the four images on the Merkava, mm. God's holy chariot. Nice. These are a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. That's right. From Ezekiel. Nice. Thus, when Rashi here mentions a lion and an eagle, he is referring to only two of the creatures depicted on the brokas. Very interesting. So either it's not specifically these two, or it is these two, but of a larger number four, or we're not even sure, or it's specifically these two. All right, interesting. Very interesting. Okay, let's continue. Um, and you shall make loops of blue wool on the edge of one curtain, that is the edge of the first set, and, you sh- and so shall you do at the edge of the animal's curtain on the second set. I feel like now we're getting into loops on the curtains, all right, it's going to throw us for a loop. And there, there are clasps, then loops, and clasps that are going to, that are the loops, the clasps are going to go into the loops and hold the curtains together. And now we're going to get very detailed. So, what we're going to do is we're going to pause here for today. We got into the curtains a little bit. The idea here is that there is a sacred space in the, in the tabernacle, in the Mishkan, that is not open to all, that has a cover, that has a roof to it, so to speak. That roof, that cover is made up of these curtains that are beautifully woven. Um, depicting something, whether animals, not animals, uh, angelic, uh, mystical images of animals or not. Um, this is God's chariot, yeah. God's chariot, well, the Merkava, yeah, the Merkava is yeah, like the, Merkava, the Ezekiel is. had a vision of the divine chariot and all that stuff. We're going to get at that, we're going to get into that a little bit tonight in meditation from Sinai, the idea of the chariot imagery and all that stuff. Anyway, so that is. That is it for today. So what's the, so if we were to summarize what we talked about today, we talked about, uh, well, we reviewed the ark and the three boxes. We, we then got into the menorah and then we started with the curtains. One thing I want to say about the menorah is the following. The menorah, we learned before, has to be made out of one hammer piece of gold. Even though it had many different branches and it had different lamps, it all had to be made out of one piece. And there's a profound message for all of us, which I'll conclude with, and that is, in life, There are many different people and many different types of people. When I say in life, I mean in our lives. You and I, we have our own personality and then we encounter, we have relationships or not relationships with people of different types of personalities. And we might be on completely opposite ends of the personality spectrum. I could be on one side, you could be on the other side. The Torah is reminding us that no matter who we are, no matter how we feel, we're all the same candelabra. We're all on the same, we're all hammered from the same piece of gold. We're all souls emanating from the same source. We're all emerging from the same single solid piece of gold. I might be on one end of the menorah, you're on the other end of the menorah, but we come from the same place and we share the same purpose, generally speaking, which is to bring light into the world, like the menorah, like the flames, like the lamps of the menorah that were intended, designed to bring light into the world. We too, every one of us is designed, our mission is to bring light into the world and we do so in our own unique ways. So the message here is we don't have to make someone else be like us. We don't have to make someone else look like us. We don't have to only like people that are like us. We can accept and embrace others knowing that they too are part of this cosmic candelabra, the spiritual candelabra, the spiritual menorah, and they too have a soul that is a piece of God and share a common purpose, common mission to bring the light into the world. All right, thank you for joining me today for DBP. Right, before you go, could I add one thing? Yeah, quickly, please. Yeah, in Torah it says, you shall make its lamp seven, uh, you shall kindle its lamps, and it will cast light in the direction of its face. Right. And based upon that, there shouldn't be diagonal, there should be kind of curved in, or plugged in, toward the center. Well, we're going to have to leave this for the, yeah. for the scholars. I hear what you're saying. There's other ways to understand it, certainly about turning the, the wicks inward toward the center. But either way, I hear you. Um, 
but also our light should be focused toward oh and our light good let's end let, let's end again on this message right even though we're on different sides perhaps of the candelabra like i can't even see you on the other side all right we're all we all from the same piece of metal no welding right it's not like we're different we're all from the same i mean we are different but we're all at the core of the same piece of gold and we share the same mission and we're all eventually well ultimately we're pointing in the same direction little by little we're getting there i like it ultimately we came back see that you might be team rounded i might be team diagonal but we can still get along mark <laughs> all right we'll see you all um later tonight don't forget 8 p.m if you're doing the online class uh, meditation from sinai online version thursday in person with lunch with lunch bagels lox cream cheese veggies coffee tea that's thursday at noon either way please join us for an unforgettable session of meditation from Sinai, be there or be diagonal. No. Anyway, all right, we'll see you all. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Pleasure. See you, Sarah. See you, Mark. See you, Dina Maka. See you, Dina. Take, take care, everybody.